Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow, and I'm glad that you can join us here today. I have some special guests with us that are back for a good roundtable discussion here in just a moment. But before we get there, I do want to remind you that you can find us on Facebook. That's On Politics with Eric Morrow where we post articles that are related to our conversations and to the stories, information, and issues that we cover. Also, we are uh, available after the show on SoundCloud or where you get your podcasts. And I would recommend Amazon Podcasts if you use Amazon. And of course, you can join us each week right here at 12 noon on Sundays on KTRL 90.5 FM and streaming on tarletonradio.com. So it has been a crazy week in the world of politics. I don't know how it could get any crazier, but we seem to have something come up now, not just once a week, but two or three times a week that are changing the dynamics of what's going on around us in terms of politics, in terms of the pandemic, uh, in terms of the election. And of course, one of the crazy things that we all saw this week, and I would have to say very painful things if you sat and watched through the entirety of it, uh, was the first of a series of three debates among the presidential candidates, President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden. And so I know you've heard a lot of different perspectives maybe on this, you've read things, you've seen things on television, but we wanted to provide our listeners Uh, with uh, an analysis right here at home, right here in Stephenville and in the region uh, with uh, two of my colleagues here at Tarleton State. I want to welcome back to the show Casey Thompson, who is an assistant professor of legal studies in the Department of Government, Legal Studies and Philosophy, and also our colleague, uh, Dr. Marcy Reynolds, who is an assistant professor of political science, uh, to do what we did uh, about a month, six weeks ago, where we had a roundtable discussion and just threw things out there and and looked at it from different perspectives. And so that's what's great about working with both of you, not only here at Tarleton in our program, but also in the textbook that we're working on together on public policy in Texas, uh, but to look at these issues that are happening and, and, and offer those different perspectives to our listeners. So we're starting out with a debate, looking back to Tuesday night and, and what happened. And I think the first place to start here are your overall thoughts. I've, al- I've already shared mine, which, uh, which I said was painful. I mean, I have a few other things to go along with that, but uh, I think both of you in terms of your analysis and, and how you see this in terms of the race, in terms of presidential politics, in terms of voters, uh, th- those are critical things to, to look at. So in terms of presidential debates, uh, how, how did this look to you and, and what happened on Tuesday evening between the two candidates? And Marcy, we'll start with you. Oh, okay, thanks. Well, you know, I was looking around to see how the debate was being perceived by the press. And I went to you know, different ideological outlets, you know, and they have a spectrum of ideology. So I tried to cover you know, different outlets and see what they said about the debate. I also went to some international news media outlets to see what they were saying about the debate. And I could not find one headline that was positive about the debate, unfortunately. Now, there were some quips from the articles, but by and large, I think what they were saying about the debates is symbolized by a headline in a German newspaper that said, a TV duel like a car accident. 
And I really thought that's kind of what it was. You know, it was, it was a duel going back and forth. And yet it was like a car accident that I just couldn't turn away from. Just had to see how this was going to progress. And it wasn't a surprise that Trump came out swinging because that's what had been talked about prior to the debate that he was going to be on the attack. And he certainly was. I was surprised about how much he was on the attack perhaps um, and how many times that he did try to interrupt and overcome what Biden was saying and even the moderator, Chris Wallace. Um, and I do think for Biden's part, you know, he had to go in there and prove that he was tough and that he could withstand these attacks of Trump and be able to adjust and speak you know, to the public. And so and I don't think he did a really good job of that either. I think he did get sucked into uh, going back and forth with Trump. Sure. With the things that he said about calling him a clown and telling him to shut up. I mean, that's gotten a lot of focus, too. But but you're right. It's very clear that there was a strategy on the part of Trump, whether it was intentional or not. Who knows? That's for his advisors and how they directed him. And he seemed at times to, to moderate that. But then he fell back into it regularly. And it sure, certainly was clear that he was trying to get Biden to, to engage with him in that way, because he Trump's very good at that. He's very good at at uh, uh, not not just the talking over, but 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 just trying to disrupt the flow of things, and so that that what I think was expected, or we were all hoping for, was maybe more substance. We we it just can never get to that point. Uh, although Casey, I think you saw some things and and saw a, a few things in this that I think are important, and and you'd mentioned about going back and looking at the transcript. Uh, which if you take out all the interruptions, maybe that uh, makes it a little different. But uh, what were your what are your thoughts on how things went and, and what we can take away from it? Well, I will I will agree with uh, Marcy right off the bat. One of the headlines that I saw in doing the, the same kind of around the uh, world look, my personal favorite was the one that said it was a train wreck that ran into a dumpster fire. Uh, and, and so, you know, that's how it was perceived uh, by many of the viewers. I did in trying to watch it live and then going back, watching it again and then reading the transcripts, you, you'd get a different takeaway. Uh, one of the first things I noticed was that it, by reading the transcripts, uh, the first segment, two minutes uninterrupted. The next segment, two minutes uninterrupted. They both uh, allowed the first segment to pass without interrupting each other. And then actually it was Vice President Biden that made the first interruption. He was the first one that stepped in. And and and, and I will agree with you. I think it is President Trump's approach uh, to, to, he's a very strong personality and it is his approach to try and, and take control uh, of whatever environment he's in. The, the question that I've came away with, uh, you know, when speaking about uh, Mr. Wallace and trying to be the moderator, is the question I wondered, because I heard a lot of folks say that, you know, they they needed more structure, they needed more control, they want some way to mute the mics or something like that. And, And one of the questions that I walked away with was perhaps it's actually that there was too much control, because they try and structure it to where, okay, you get two minutes and then you get two minutes and we try to keep everything balanced and now you get a rebuttal time. And 
the both of these people uh, are are good at speaking in public and as soon as you start trying to put these type of artificial constraints around them it starts causing some of this this interruption that just seemed to snowball from that point from trying to maybe try and over control the environment so one of the first questions that comes out of any debate any of these types of debates are is the impact. Well, how much impact is this having on viewers, on voters, and so on? And I think we have to look at impact while the debate was airing. Of course, the, the viewing numbers, are, this was the second most watched political event. The first one was the first debate with Hillary Clinton in 2016. So it, that already kind of indicates either one, that a lot of people have already made up their mind and they didn't want to watch it, or as as we know, and this is what we hear oftentimes from uh, political scientists and others in our fields is, well, I'm not going to watch it. I'll read about it after and get the analysis because sometimes that has more influence than the actual event itself. Uh, and, and I'll give some examples of that shortly, but what, what do you think, uh, Casey, was the impact here uh, during the event itself? Is And, and what, what that, if any, had any impact on the campaigns or the election? Uh, my my gut reaction from uh, you know immediately after the debate was that uh, it it rallied both of the bases. Uh, it rallied President Trump's basis because they those folks that are his avid supporters wanted to see the fight, wanted to see that aggression that he's he's famous for. It, I think it rallied some of Vice President Biden's uh, base because he did perform. Uh, very well. Uh, you know, there was a lot of conversation ahead of the debate about, you know, his ability, if he was still the same Joe Biden that was there, you know, a decade ago. And I think he, he answered a lot of those questions and, and did very well. If someone came in as an as a undecided voter, if someone came in to try and learn something from this, they probably turned it off. Uh, because, and it, it, it didn't have a lot of depth uh, in from a policy perspective point. So as far as impact, uh, the impact that it had on voting, I don't know that it changed any votes because the, the ardent supporters for both sides, it's not gonna change theirs. And I think anybody that came in with an honest desire to learn something was probably disappointed and didn't learn anything. Right, I think the what's out there in the so in social media and so forth is affirming that because whoever's on whichever side you're on, those people are claiming, well, this person won that debate, or this person was was clearly in control, or look how rudely the other candidate treated my person, and so on. Marcy, in looking at that, and and I don't know, you may have some things to add to what what Casey said, but also post debate, and you've looked at a lot of. Uh, of uh, media outlets, you've looked at how this was covered and then portrayed, and and oftentimes that has a lot of influence because people zero in, uh, uh, journalists zero in on certain things, and then those become even more highlighted than they were uh, during the actual uh, debate uh, itself. So it's, basically because this is moving so quickly, uh, you don't really have time to stop and think. You're on to the next thing, and okay, what, what actually happened there? Uh, do you see any key issues there coming out of this that are just getting that major attention that will kind of be the remnant of the debate, that whether it has influence on voting or not, it's it's that topic of conversation uh, that people are now having as they look back on the event on Tuesday night. 
Yes, well, I agree with Casey's analysis. And then when I was reading the post-debate articles and what they were saying about it, the one thing that I kept hearing again and again was about the white supremacist comments and how Trump refused to take a stand against white supremacy. And you know, why did he say proud boys, uh, stand back and stand by, you know, what did that mean? So there was a lot of commentary about that. But of course, the next day, Trump walked that back and said he didn't know about the Proud Boys organization. And then he also used the word stand down when he was making um, that announcement. So uh, that was a big deal, especially right after the debate. I heard a lot of people talking about that. As another deal that people are still talking about is about peacefully accepting the results of the election. There's a little bit of concern now about what's going to happen if, you know, Trump does not clearly win or, you know, if we're waiting for those absentee, absentee ballots to be counted, you know, how long is that going to take? You know, is there going to be a peaceful transition of power if that needs to occur? So those are the on two issues. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and on both of those issues, I mean, on the first one. So I, when I was watching it, I could see and, and he said it three times. Trump said, sure, sure, sure. Of course, sure is one of those responses. Like I know when my wife texts me and she says, uh, would you like this for dinner? And you go, sure. Sometimes that's not enough. Right. It's like, is that what you really want or is do you want something else or, or so on? And so I think what we see, and, and one one side could say, well, this got blown out of proportion. He said, and this is what his press secretary said, well, he said, sure, in response, will you, the question was, uh, you know, will you uh, denounce these organizations? Will you denounce white supremacists and so forth? And he goes, sure, and sure, and sure. And then he doesn't help himself with that additional comment. And, and I'm wondering too in this, and, and you might have some thoughts on this uh, as well, that the Proud Boys thing came in there because there's probably been discussions around these groups in his intelligence briefings. And, and Trump has always struck me as the kind of person who picks up on bits of information and, and holds them. And then they, they come out at times, you know, he, he, the way his mind works is that it, he associates. So white supremacy, Proud Boys, you know, there, there's some conversations that, that they've had and that's in there. And then all of a sudden that comes out because that's not a normal thing that somebody would say. Right. And then to actually identify the name of a group. And so I, I was thinking here, wow, he, he kind of jumbled this uh, at a point where he really shouldn't. He shouldn't have said that name. He, he he of course, everybody or most people are saying he should have been more uh, affirmative in denouncing uh, white supremacist groups and and so forth. And he's done it in different settings, but it's been nuanced all throughout his presidency because he'll say one thing and then he'll come back and say something else. And and so I don't know that that, that helped him. And, and certainly that got a lot of media attention. I don't know if either of you have any thoughts on that, on, on having watched that or like Casey and reviewing the transcripts, how, how does that come across and what what Trump's actually either doing or not doing, or, or is he is he kind of hurting himself there or is it enough? Did he affirm enough? Uh, well, I don't think he affirmed enough in, in, in this debate. Uh, in reading the transcript, honestly, when I watched it the first time, I couldn't tell who said Proud Boys. I couldn't tell if he said it, mm -hmm. if Biden said it, if Wallace said it. I couldn't even tell where the word right. came from. Uh, and so in the transcripts, it kind of helps it clear up. What I took out of it, especially kind of after you know reflection later, 
uh, I, I think one of the things that he was struggling with so much, he being uh, President Trump, is that you know, Wallace said, will you denounce them? And he said, sure. And then Wallace said, well, then do it. Uh, and anytime you tell President Trump to do something, he's not going to. And so he wasn't going to, you know, repeat after me, say those words that I'm telling you to say, because it's somebody else in control and he's responding to it. So his personality is not going to allow him to do that. The, the thing that, you know, I had to go back and do some research to, to make sure I was right on this point. But the thing that I thought was odd was that that's, this question was here anyway. I, I know, and I agree, he said some things that are, are you know, problematic, but the very same uh, debate moderator asked the very same candidate at the time, the very same question in a primary debate in 2016, and he answered it with, I denounce this person, I denounce this group, I denounce this. And then, and then right after the Charlottesville incidents, which kind of was the question that brought all this up, uh, he did it again. Uh, and there's a, there's a, you know, there's two or three different places you can find it. The one I found was a Time Magazine uh, article from 2017 that had the transcript of his statements. And it's emphatic, it's clear. Now, there are other things that he has said that aren't as clear and cause some problems, but it seemed odd to me that this was the same question from the same person to the same guy. That's the same thing they did four years ago. Right. And I, I didn't know why, uh, but man, hey, I, I do think president Trump would have been better served uh, being much more, much more positive in his statement uh, of denouncing instead of just, you know, kind of sure, sure, sure. What is it you want me to do here? Right, right. Yeah, I agree with you on that point of him not because then it's forced because you're having the moderator ask the question for a specific answer. And, and Trump was not prepared. Uh, and, and he usually needs it as a statement to be able to offer detail to that to say, okay, this is what we're doing uh, against white supremacy. This is what we're doing against these radical groups and, and so on. And because it was very clear in, in terms of jumping off on Antifa and trying to, to get that into the, the dialogue that, that he just wasn't ready to respond to that, not only in, in maybe in a, a more appropriate way, but just responding and saying, yes, I denounced them would have been forced because of the moderator, not that that's not what he believes. I mean, I, I, I honestly think he, if, if he knew enough about these groups or, or hopefully he does, but that, that uh, I think right now it's, he's behind in the polls, he's concerned about voting and so on, or it just was on the fly and he just, he just wasn't ready. He just wasn't prepared to be able to answer that in a way that, that would have been beneficial to him, I think. Yeah, that, that could have been a high point in the debate if he would have responded, but responded with some context and been able to address that in um, showing what steps and try to cure that, that he's taken as president, but try to clear up confusion. Because that's the why the why the question's there uh, is because there's confusion, because he he just can't get it out in a, in a, in a way that people understand where he is. Uh, on some of these issues. Uh, what, what other um, critical moments do uh, Marcy, do you, when you look at the debate, do you see any other, uh, what we would, could say maybe takeaway moments that uh, have either 
we we saw it or it's been shaped by how the 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 story of the debate and the uh how the media and and political parties and people are reflecting on this now after it's happened well i think with the two parties there's this general approach to what does the general welfare mean so in the constitution's preamble of course our country is designed to promote the general welfare. So, okay, what does that mean? And underneath all the back and forth in the debate, I did see some traces of that argument being put forth where on the Republican side, the general welfare is best served by promoting the economy, strengthening the economy, getting businesses up and running again. Whereas on the Democratic side, the general welfare is more in line with social policies, healthcare, addressing the pandemic. And so I did hear that quite a bit um, underneath what they were saying during the debate. I'm seeing it a little bit in the reaction to the debate, but not a whole lot, actually. It's more about the back and forth, it seems like, and, and picking out you know, what was mentioned during the debate. And another thing that was very minor that I'm not seeing at all, but I thought it was interesting being a former public school teacher, you know, how important it is when we select the curriculum that we tell our students and um, what is the story, what is the narrative of the American story that we are going to promote? And I saw two different perspectives of that as well, just briefly, and, and they haven't been discussed a whole lot, but I think in the, it's been in the news lately how Trump wants to go back to core values and, and teaching kind of the American dream conception of uh, our story, whereas Biden presented more as, okay, we need to you know, admit what's been going on in our country, you know, the racism that's inherent in our history, and work to come together. So I did see that, but I'm just, I'm not seeing a lot of discussion about right now. So when we look back over presidential debates on, on these points that you're speaking uh, to, Marcy, that we, we look back and we've seen how these evolved in recent times where it's much more about sound bites, it's much more about zingers, it's much more about, they've taken the audience out now, that used to be a factor. Uh, uh, but it was the, the, the craft of debating, so the use of language, the use of the skills of rhetoric in order to engage with people and try to help them not only understand where you are as a candidate, but hopefully to win their their support. I mean, this was completely absent in this debate. I mean, I think that's what uh, some people were uh, looking at. And of course, my wife's an English teacher. So, you know, she just said, well, I can't use that, you know, in a, in a classroom. You can, I mean, you can use it as a lesson on what not to do in, in terms of trying to convince someone of anything. Um, but uh, uh, but what that what we saw was instead of having that that kind of measured and focused and detailed approach to positions and ideas, uh, well, well, that it, it just was non-existent. We this this fighting, this this wrangling, this talking over uh, each other. Uh, but there were some other policy elements in there, uh, and and you pointed a few of those out, Marcy, in terms of the the political parties and their approach, and that's connected with their platforms. Uh, Casey, I don't. Uh, on this, did you see, uh, and especially I'm, I'm relying on you because you uh, you did your homework here and read the transcript, which is fantastic. I'm wondering when I when I watch some of the, the news shows and I see people on there commenting about it and I'm going, did, did you really 
go back and look at this, you know, <laughs> but, you, but, but policy, what, what, did, what else can we take away that, that may give us some idea? And, and is it really anything that we didn't either already know, or was it even substantive enough to really, to, to engage people uh, in thinking at that level? Well, I would, uh, I would say I want to come in on, on Marcy's point because I saw the exact same thing and, and, and between the two differences of the parties and the, their approaches. Uh, and I, I heard Vice President Biden at one point you know, say that we have to take care of the pandemic before we take care of the economy. And so it's a very linear thinking that we have to put the social uh, and the more humanitarian things in front of economic decisions. We can't address the economy until we fix the, the health crisis. And the, the opposition, the Republican side, tries to take a more multitasking approach of we have to look at the economic and the health care simultaneously to the approach. So I, I saw the same thing that Marcy did in that. As far as policy goes, uh, I don't think there were a whole lot of takeaways, really, that either side learned new things, but they did kind of reinforce some. Honestly, the, the kind of wild card here was the climate change issue, because it wasn't on the previously published topics list uh, that had come out. And so I thought that's where we actually saw both of them performing a little bit better, because it, it almost seemed more honest and less scripted because they didn't know to prepare for it. And so when you go back and you read the policy points uh, on climate change, uh, then, then you see some takeaways from both. Uh, Vice President Biden tried to make it, uh, honestly tried to play both sides there a little bit. Earlier on in the debate, he was the Democrat Party. He said, I am the Democrat Party. And then later on, he said, well, I'm just a retired politician looking for a job, uh, essentially. Uh, and so, and then he said, well, then, you know, the new green deal is not my deal. My deal is the Biden deal. And that's the first I'd ever heard of the Biden plan. Uh, and so that was kind of news breaking. I don't know what the details are because I don't know that anybody else does either. But, uh, you know, he was he was trying to separate himself some on the climate change issue from the Green New Deal standards. Uh, and President Trump uh was uh, addressing it more that you know there's other factors whether it's forest management or there's other factors that are involved here other than just climate change and tried to make the point of that balancing of climate issues with economic issues because you can't get india and china and everybody else to play along and wreck your economy in the process is his position and that's what took him to the argument about the paris accord and whether it be in it or out of it. So. Right. Yeah, I think that was a, a critical moment, at least on the policy side, and those that would be watching that. In, in that, too, the, the Biden plan, uh, in what little detail we received on it, reminded me a, a, a lot of the Obama plan, uh, and that's the investment in, in the green economy. It's an investment in green industry uh, and looking at it in a kind of free market system where you're not necessarily – uh, government is, is not taking as much a leading role as an investing role in trying to get these industries more engaged and doing more. And so I, I think it'll be interesting to see what that is. I, of course, going back to the politics of it and what was on display uh, with the debate, uh, 
Trump at the, on the one hand, if you notice, was accusing him of socialism. And then on, in the next breath saying, you just lost the left, uh, which, okay, well, you can't have your cake and eat it too here. You know, either he's a, you know, either you're saying he's a socialist and this is the road we're going to go down, or you're, you're saying, okay, well, he's not connecting with the left. I don't know what, I, I, I thought that was kind of an interesting back and forth because Trump said that several times uh, in response to things that Biden was saying. And we'll be, it'll be interesting to see because I think that's one area that has not been given attention post-debate. And it won't, I mean, I don't think you're going to have Bernie Sanders. I don't think you're going to have um, Ocasio-Cortez come out against Biden or, or criticizing Biden at this point. Okay, well, it's post-election. If he wins, okay, fine, they'll, they'll get in, in, in the room and they'll engage and they'll talk about uh, their different views and issues and where they think this will be going. But right now, po- they're, they're all focused on a Biden win. And so they're not, they're not going to come out and, and, and openly criticize uh, their candidate, their party's candidate uh, for presidency. Uh, Marcy, on policy, anything on, on what we've been discussing, or did you see any other specific policy issues that you thought were notable uh, that give us some picture into what what we may either have in, a, in another Trump four years or a Biden presidency? Well, I wanted to piggyback about the not the new Green Deal, but the Biden plan. Right, yes. Exactly. So I did look that up a little bit, and it, you're right. You know, those environmental uh, components of the Green New Deal is part of Biden's plan, but he is backing away from the uh, social policies where every American family would be guaranteed a job, you know, those kinds of things that are in the Green New Deal. So it's a little bit of a difference, uh, but it is on his website. <laughs> yeah. uh, then also, he mentioned the expansion of the Affordable Care Act. So he wants to address, in particular, the states where they did not expand Medicaid protection to 133% of the poverty level, and Texas is one of those states. So he wants to offer people living in those states an option to get on Medicaid with federal government funding of those premiums. So that's an extension of that uh, to address some of the lack of health care and then for Trump, he did try to talk about he's making efforts to lower prescription drug prices. So right now it's been executive orders, but you know that's something that I think resonates with many people is try to get what we pay for prescription drugs to be more on par with what people in other countries are paying. So the, the getting back to, and, and I think the fact that we can spend this kind of little time analyzing the substance of the debate shows you how much substance was not there. Uh, uh, but at, at this point, I think it's looking at the debate it, itself and kind of wrapping this up because there are two more of these, depending how this is handled, if it's done virtually, if uh, Trump, uh, President Trump is quarantined uh, because of uh, the diagnosis of COVID. Uh, and of course, we wish any president health and safety in this, because this is very critical national security issue. Uh, there's, there's a lot of challenges that are, that are connected with this at this point. And it's, it's right in the middle at the end here of a campaign. Uh, and, and you want people to be engaged and to, uh, this is what they need to be doing is connecting with voters and, and trying to, to, uh, finish this out. Uh, we're, we're less than a month now, or right at a month uh, before the election. But I think uh, the question here is with all of the focus, uh, not all the focus, but a part of the focus has been on the debate itself on, okay, do what do we do 
uh, to uh, make this work better because we are going to have a round two and a round three, maybe. Uh, and so that's my question. Should we have more debate? Or on the other hand, uh, should we, are there changes that could be done that would make this work better? I'll just jump in and say, yeah, I looked into that a little bit and both parties do agree on the rules of debate before they have the debates. So they have looked at them and they've come to an agreement. Um, but now we see that there's some talk going around about having the moderators have the power to turn off the mics. And we're having some disagreements with that right now. So I do think we do need some more debates. I'm all for giving people a second chance. Uh, let's try to do it again. And may, maybe, you know, Trump can speak more to his policies as and Biden too. You know, we can have more space so they can let us know a little bit more what they're thinking regarding policies. Um, so that's my input. Hey, Casey, what about you? What do you think going forward? Well, I, I do think... Uh, I, I do think we should have more debates, uh, and, and I think from from the pol from the politics side of it, uh, you rarely back down or want to get out of debates if you think you're winning. Uh, and, and so, if if both sides think they're winning, then they want to continue with the winning. So I don't see them backing down. Now I'm I'm the same way. You know, we're we're policy folks. This is what we do. So I'd rather see a Lincoln Douglas style debate where they sit across from a table from, from each other for four hours, but that doesn't make good TV. What makes good TV sadly is probably what happened Tuesday night. Uh, you know, it was the ultimate in a reality TV show. Uh, and so as far as the moderator, you know, uh, trying to, you know, shut off mics and, and, you know, control the timing. I get it. They're on a TV schedule. They're trying to be as equitable and fair as possible to both sides. But that that to me almost puts the moderator too much in the middle, too much in the in the show. And the show's really not supposed to be about the moderator. Uh, you know, if we're going to do that, then why don't they just have a big button where they can drop them into a dunk tank, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. also. And so it's it's not, you know, or Nickelodeon slime buckets drop on their head if they talk too long. <laughs> or, you, know, you know, we could we could go into that kind of stuff and it makes good TV, but it makes the moderator and the process the the focus of attention and not the candidates and their policy points. So right. I, I, I certainly hope we have more and I hope there's more actual information that comes out of them uh, with the next two. Sure. There, there are polls going around the nation of all these different methods that could be used, like the trap doors and the, the, the those kind of things to make this uh, make this work. I, I, I'm showing my days now here, but uh, I'm, I'm for putting them both in a cone of silence. And then no matter what they say, nobody hears it unless their mic is on. So uh, and that would help with with uh, COVID as well, because they would be protected from anyone else in the room. But uh, anyway, we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, this uh, this diagnosis of COVID for the president throws a lot of things into uh, a mix here of what's going to happen uh, going ahead in the next few weeks, because uh, uh, how uh, he'll be able to continue to campaign and what the what the impact is uh, on him personally, but also on the, uh, on the election process. So we'll, we'll look at that. I know one thing I'm going to bring in, and I, I'd mentioned this to both of you before the show, because it reminded me back when 
uh, with the Gore Bush uh, election in 2000, where they had had viewers that were voters for either side or undecided, and they put uh, 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 monitored their brain waves. They had sensors on their heads. They uh, they monitored their their brain waves, and I think the sweat factor was another thing that was involved as well. You know, because your body perspires based on how your adrenaline and your system goes, and and that told some interesting things too. We're waiting on those reports to come out because they did that again with this debate uh, on Tuesday night, and it'll be interesting to see uh, what viewers saw. I think one of the initial findings that I tapped in right away, and this is what they found in two thousand. Uh, at that time, it was about policy. So whenever a candidate went into tremendous detail, which, of course, Al Gore was was really good at doing that, of going into a lot of detail that people lost interest. And of course, the longer a debate goes, the, the less interest and less engaged people are. So by the time the comments came out about denouncing white supremacists, that question and that that um, that dialogue there, uh the interest of people had waned considerably uh, by that by that point in the debate. So it'll be interesting to kind of look at that and see in terms of debate dynamics uh, what that tells us and and maybe help us to try to get these things back on track for what they need to be. Not so much of the entertainment factor, as you're saying, Casey. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back to uh, wrap up the show with a little bit of a, a quick round here of looking at factors. And, and analysis on where we are in the election and how and what the likely outcome is uh, in terms of the presidency, who, who will win. And we're not so much trying to predict here as we're going through and getting uh, the insight of both Casey and Marcy on these different factors. So we'll take a short break and we'll be right back. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. Looking for a fun, casual podcast? Well, listen to Cruising the Planet. Conversations between a rotating crew of broke college students just trying to get through the semester. Listen in live every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Central on the Tarleton Radio YouTube channel. Or listen to the episode afterwards wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Cruising the Planet. T for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsay Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow, and we're joined today by my colleagues, Casey Thompson and Marcy Reynolds, and we all teach in the Department of Government, uh, political, uh, Legal Studies, sorry, I don't want to forget that, Casey, Legal Studies and Philosophy, uh, but we are uh, working together on a, a policy textbook for Texas government, and we also collaborate on in other areas as well, but it's great to have them on for the roundtable, and we wanted to wrap up the show today uh, with... Uh, going back to some of the data that I have brought to the show consistently in looking at analysis of factors that will impact the outcome of the election. And so what I've asked Marcy and Casey to do is to uh, uh, 
give us their perspective on each of these factors. And so some of these for our regular listeners may sound familiar. Uh, we're looking at the Moody Analytics Study. We're looking at the Engage a Swing Voter Project. Uh, we're looking at the spread in the national polls and a few other factors. So the one I really want to start with, and we did address this some in the first segment, but I wanted to go back to it just, just very quickly and just kind of your perspective on this. And Marcy, we'll start with you, the debate. Did this ha have any impact? Did it favor one or the other candidates? Well, that is a really good question. And I, I really don't think so, to be honest with you. A few weeks ago, the Gallup poll came out where Trump's approval rating had risen to 46%. It's basically kind of where it's been throughout his four years in office. So I think he's got his base and the base will not change. All right. They're going to vote for him no matter what. Uh, with the polls coming out after the debate, we do have Biden with about an 8% lead, which I think was mentioned earlier. But uh, that's now. <laughs> and you know, I do, another poll that I saw said that 90% of the people who watched the debate already had their minds made up about who won. So within that 10% that's left, I, I don't know um, if it's this debate is going to change anybody's mind or even motivate them to go vote. And, and that's concerning to me. Okay, great. Casey, any thoughts on that? Do you see anybody favored as of Tuesday night with the debate? Uh, I, I really think uh, Trump probably had more to lose uh, out of the debate. And so, uh, you know, the, the incumbent president uh, usually is poor performing in first debates. We've seen that in the last couple of, of cycles that the challenger seems to come out ahead. I, I think uh, Biden probably came out uh, of the debate uh, higher than he went in. And I think Trump came out of the debate either at the same place or a little bit lower. I will say that, you know, I've, I've looked at the, the odds too, but I always look at the betting odds. Uh, and the, the average of the betting odds in Vegas right now uh, have Biden at 61 and Trump at 39. Uh, and so the, the spread for the folks that are putting money down uh, is a little bit larger than even mm -hmm. the, the political punditry uh, spread is right now. Uh, okay. Well, thank you both. And I, I, I agree. I, we did have seen a little bit of drop in uh, Trump and a little rise in Biden, just barely. I mean, enough to make that a solid eight point spread in national polling. So the, the, I would look at it and say that, yes, you're right. Trump had had some to lose. He, he needed probably a better performance than, than what he had. Uh, as many said, Biden could come in there and just show that he could hang in there and do it and engage and, and, and speak and not get flustered and so on. So uh, the next one is this, a uh, uh, news that we have, and this is, of course, still developing to see what the impact will be, but the fact that the president's been diagnosed with COVID, uh, and I don't know what you, you see in terms of the extent of this, but uh, starting, Casey, with you, do you see this uh, as, as helping or hurting right now? Uh, I, I honestly think it may be a little too close, uh, too soon to tell. I think the next 48 hours are going to be extremely telling uh on on where we are it depends on his impact if uh he if the president is asymptomatic and just can't travel a lot well then it lessens his impact he'll he'll make a lot more statements he'll make a lot more tv appearances radio shows and it's going to hurt the campaign but it's not going to be devastating if he's bedridden for two weeks 
then it's an entirely different game. Uh, and so right now, I think we have to find out, you know, sometime middle of next week, uh, where, how the president is responding to it, and then we'll be able to predict uh, its impact. I, I think it's, it's too soon to know uh, the, the long-term uh, chances, but we're running out of time. I mean, at a minimum, a 10-day quarantine loses a third of the campaign. Right, right. Marcy, your thoughts? Well, I think Casey made some really good points there. And the only thing I have to add is that it might uh, promote a sympathy vote for him. Maybe some of those undecided might uh, be more generous towards him because he is now, um, has been attested positive for COVID-19. So one of the things that I'm, I'm watching with this is uh, he was in contact with a number of people, including uh, the Supreme Court justice nominee, uh, of course, his, his chief of staff, all of his senior advisors, they were all on that helicopter to uh, then to the plane to Minnesota, his family members. Uh, I mean, we, we really don't know. I mean, like you said, Casey, the next 48 hours, I, I think, yes, the sympathy part of it, Marcy, that's right. Uh, he, uh, he's trying to reach out and connect with seniors that have struggled with this and now he can associate with them. But uh, if, if people uh, around him uh, start to uh, uh, have this and test positive for this, this could affect a number of different things that are going on right now. Uh, and and I'm, I'm, one thing I'm, I think is that Supreme Court justice uh, nominee process uh, to see where, uh, where that goes uh, if, if there's some problems there. So I'm, not, I'm hoping there's not. I'm hoping all these people are negative and they can continue to do their jobs that they're doing for the country uh, and that even if they are, that it's not severe. But uh, this is something that's developing, and I think it has a, a chance of having even a broader impact depending on which uh, direction it goes. I want to bring this back home to Texas for just a moment. So we've had a couple of announcements this past week uh, by Governor Abbott uh, executive orders that have, uh, or one executive order that limited uh, the places in each county. So he limited it to one where you can drop off uh, mail-in ballots. Uh, and, and so that creates some very significant challenges. Uh, Harris County, Tarrant County, Dallas County. I mean, some of these places where you've got uh, a million people or more, which is larger, the population is larger than 26 different states. I mean, Harris County has a larger population than 26 other states in the U.S., and yet you're saying there's one location where you can drop off. The other one uh, is one that he, he's trying to do, and that is to reduce uh, early voting, which is uh, about to start in Texas. Uh, so it'll be a three-week period that starts in, in mid-October to reduce that down to two weeks. So here we are about a, a little over a week away from early voting starting, and he wants to, to, to diminish that time. Impact, and I know other states are trying to do similar things. You've got all kinds of things in the courts all over the country trying to test this, but in terms of the, the election itself and, and who that benefits, uh, where, do you, where do you see this uh, in terms of the, the, when we look at it on the national level, and then how that, how that actually works here in Texas or what challenges that may create? Marcy, do you have some thoughts? Right, right. That's a really good point and really good questions, Eric. Thank you for that. I think, you know, in counties like Harris or Tarrant and somewhat less in Dallas, there is such a lack of mass transportation. So these people who do want to submit their absentee ballots, uh, they are going to have to try to find transportation to get there to that one place. 
And so those people who would like transportation to go to that one location are usually people who have less money and who would tend to vote more Democrat. So for that reason, I would argue that this will favor the Republican Party um, when these policies are put in place. Casey, you have thoughts on it as well? Uh, yeah, there's quite a few things. Uh, as you mentioned, the lawsuits, uh, you know, they had tried to expand uh, early voting and then there were lawsuits and there was a ruling recently that said that was unconstitutional and that had to be taken back. There's other lawsuits that have been put in on straight ticket voting. Uh, there was a, a law passed to, to get rid of straight ticket voting. There was a, a judge out of El Paso that tried to stay that saying that it would cause longer lines and it would cause more exposure uh, and health risk. And that's been before the court. And I think the, now the stay has been overturned. So, uh, but th this is tremendously dynamic for 30, you know, something days away from an election, uh, you know, that we, that, that we, we're still working on procedure elements. And as far as uh, the, the drop-off place for the uh, absentee ballots, uh, I, I agree with Marcy's analysis completely on uh, if you were going to pick a side that it impacts. I am curious, however, because this is such a new thing, I am curious how many people in Texas are actually going to take try to take advantage of it. Uh, you know, the the absentee ballot, mail-in ballot kind of approach is a new thing to us. Uh, there, we've always had the absentee ballots. But it's a very restricted class of people, essentially, that have always had access to it. And so I don't know, with, with this close to the election, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see what the impact is on, on how many people actually choose to use that as an option uh, for voting. Well, there's more data that I want to get your perspectives on, but we're out of time today. And I want to thank you both for joining us right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. And this, these roundtables are great. And I had great compliments on the first one. So we're going to do this again, as long as you're willing. Uh, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us today. Thank you, Marcy and Casey, uh, for being on the air with us. And we'll continue to engage with these critical issues. And uh, I, I hope we're planning an election night special. Uh, so I'm hoping that uh, the two of you, if you're available, that we can get you on for part of that. Uh, to look at what's happening on election day to see it, what it tells us and, and then all of the things that we've put into it, what, uh, what, it, what it looks like ahead. So thank you again. Thank you for joining us. And we will look forward to being back with you again uh, next Sunday at noon right here on KTRL 90.5 FM.